Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hey Matt, here we are and indeed it's a fantastic day. Got a beautiful warming day. Uh, one of our, our favourite friends mm-hmm. out there and it's actually not just it's family and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us who we have with us today. Okay. Thanks, Richard. We're going to uh, go across and talk to Stephen Porges, which I no doubt most of you would know about. He's the originator of the polyvagal theory and author of 400-something papers, um, an incredible academic. And we're joined by his son, Seth Porges. He's a documentary director and writer. Uh, He lives in New York, and he has co-written a book uh, with his dad, uh, Richard, which is? Polyvagal World, how safety and trauma changes us. Absolutely fascinating. Now, he's written it with Seth, who's not an academic. He's a journalist, filmmaker. So this is going to be interesting. What is the angle that they've taken it? And it's not polyvagal theories, polyvagal world. I'm really interested, really mm. interested to see where they take this. Fantastic. Now, before we jump across to them, if you do enjoy what we are doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, you can support us in two ways. Uh, jump across to our YouTube channel. There'll be a link in the show notes and subscribe there and like us there. Uh, But also, if you're a professional in psychotherapy world, come across to our academy site. That's thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. And we'd love for you to be part of the tribe there. Come and subscribe. Jump in for a month and try us out. We'd love to have you. Yep, hundreds and hundreds of hours of fabulous learning material, videos, reading material. We also provide certificates so that you can take those to your associations for CEO certificates and lots and lots of associations all around the world recognize the science of psychotherapy. Beautiful. But now we're off to the Porges family in the US of A. Stephen and Seth, thank you so much for being here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you both today. Well, thank you very much for having us. Uh, uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you both here. And uh, Stephen, we've we've seen you many times. Uh, we've got this really interesting other person. I'm going to hand it over to the uh, to the senior of the of the group to just lead us in. Uh, it's wonderful to see us here. Wonderful to meet you, Steph. Stephen, what what are we doing here today? Well, to me, this is this is the opportunity for Seth, my my son, and I to have a dialogue about what we did, or what I would say, what he led me to do. And uh, we've written a book. It's called Our Polyvagal World. And I have one question after working with him on that book, and that is, where did he get all that information? How did he? Yeah, you know, a leading I, question. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, how did he become so polyvagal informed? I'm still curious about that. It is to me overwhelming. To you know, Seth is literally a professional writer. He is a journalist. He's a filmmaker. He's an interesting person. We'll get to his 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 uh, contributions. Uh, and the idea, and this was something we both wanted to, was to write a book that people would understand. And in working on this book, when I would read the uh, basically the preliminary chapters and stuff, and I would do some little editing, uh, I was just amazed at, uh, at the voice that came out. And in a way, it, it's so accessible, which is the way he writes, 
But from my perspective, as kind of the originator of the ideas, I heard my voice. You know, it was like this paradoxical situation. And then I stepped back and, and said, where did he get all this information? He's not my student. He's my son. Uh, and he has his own creativity and his own brilliance. And where did this all come from? So, Seth, I'm giving it to you right now. Yeah, you're, you're, you're on the spot there, Seth. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's <laughs> Thank you, Dad. It's really great to hear, hear you say that. No, like, as he was saying, the goal with this book was, I think, a recognition from both of us. And I give him a lot of credit for recognizing uh, this being a feature of his prior writings on polyvagal theory, that most of what was out there, particularly things he had written was just incredibly inaccessible. You know, like he he had prior books about the polyvagal theory, but it kind of felt like you're deciphering the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Like, um, and it, there and there's there's a charm to that too, where you know it kind of feels like a sacred text. And you're trying to understand what does it all mean. <laughs> um, but I think there's a real realization that if we didn't uh, translate this, if we didn't break this down into plain English, somebody else would, and they would probably mess it up. They'd probably get it wrong. They would probably um, make leaps and extrapolations and generalizations that, that just weren't there. And it felt important to me to make sure that we could sort of tell the polyvagal story in an accessible way uh, that came from him as one of the writers um, of, of this story. That wasn't somebody else, including myself, just kind of like going off and running with it. And I think in in doing so, as he said, I think it really led to this really great alchemy where <clears throat> I think a lot of ideas he had had, but perhaps it had difficulty um, explaining uh, plainly kind of came through. I think um, most importantly of all, it allowed us, I think, to take these ideas and put them in a place and in a, in a manner in which they can help people who, without the you know degrees of separation that normally may be there from this information, if people um, are, you know, if, if the texts are primarily into clinicians, for example, or primarily aimed at academics, that's that's still a couple of degrees removed from the the people on the ground who really need to know this information in order to help them. And by speaking directly to them, you can kind of cut out a lot of the uh, filters people might run things through, the again, the false generalizations, the false extrapolations, and really uh, tell it in a way where it's like, no, this these, these are fair things to pull from this information. These are things that we feel the science supports that you can apply to your actual life. And I, now, I think but, it's been a fantastic journey. Um, yeah. Sorry, Matt. I'll just quickly because because of this. That's it, because it's not been it's not new in the sense that uh, Stephen, you were first writing about this in the mid nineties, uh, and in fact, we're doing a science of psychotherapy. has got a bit of a polyvagal uh, 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 celebration over the next couple of months, culminating in a, 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 a chapter from your book coming in September. But I've discovered the other day a paper I wrote or or a, a, an article, uh, again, doing what you're talking about, Seth, just saying, hey, wh what's the, how does this relate to me personally? In 2007, yeah. uh, and so way ahead of the the sort of the, the zeitgeist, because it is the zeitgeist now. Uh, the the journey is really uh, is really at this point, and I think that's what's so exciting that it's the father and son that are doing the the, the telling. Yeah, and I think you know, Dr. Borges will be the first person to say that a lot of uh, the the places we find, you know, what really I think 
inform this book, inform the way I see the polyvagal theory is, I think there's a realization that a lot of people who have become immersed in this world and become understanding of this material eventually come to, which is the polyvagal theory. The reason it's such a big topic is because it is really like a worldview. It's a lens that almost anything can be filtered through, whether it's the development of modern social structures or the way we treat our family members or the way uh, we come out the other side of a traumatic instance feeling different or the way we find relief from that in the safety and feelings of love around others. It is a worldview that I think is steeped in optimism and hope and more importantly, empathy. It allows us, I think, to understand a lot of the differences and gulfs that um, have uh, colored and maybe was tainted the world around us as being the functions of shared nervous systems that we all have. And we oftentimes look at people and go, how could that person act that way? How could that person be so mean or aggressive or hateful or whatever it is without really taking a step back and realizing that maybe those aggressive behaviors come from a defensive place. Maybe those are the function of people who are trapped in feelings of threat and not feeling safe. And that maybe the way out of that is to, instead of going even, you know, being more aggressive back at them, uh, fighting them with feelings of love and safety. And I think that's a really powerful sentiment in 2023 right now, when I think people are desperate to find, to understand why they feel so bad all the time, why they feel so stressed, why they feel so unsafe, why they feel so anxious, and um, and the world around them and how the world around them perpetuates that. You know, like we we live in a world that has hijacked ancient neural circuits that developed for immediate survival in desperate times and is basically pushing those buttons 24 hours a day. And oftentimes, once you step back and look at it, you realize that, that that reality is engineered. That reality is a decision somebody made or an algorithm made. It is a construct that is abusive to us. It's abusive to us. And it's done for oftentimes very cynical reasons. Even things as simple as you stare at your phone more when you feel threatened. Well, the algorithm is going to realize that and it's going to make you feel scared more and more and more, right? You're watching TV more. Maybe you're watching cable news more when you feel threatened. Well, the programmers are going to realize that and they're going to do that more and more and more and more. And they're doing that without an understanding about what this does to our health. And I think what's really, really important about polyvagal theory and the way it colors the way we see the world is this understanding that these feelings we have, they're not just feelings that it's nice to not have or it's nice to have in a different way. They're feelings that impact our very health, our longevity, our ability to withstand illness, our ability to be resilient through almost anything the world can throw at us. And I think especially now, that's something that it's it's impossible to not uh, you know, seek answers in that domain right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. powerful, Seth, really powerful. So what I, I wanted to kind of go continue on this theme is what Seth has also taught me, because Seth had the book or parts of it read by his peer group, people of his age, which is different than the uh, the world I live in. And the world that his peer group lives in is often a world of triggers. And when you write a book that is actually has a lot to do with trauma, there's kind of a formula that's been used. And that is you talk about clinical cases and you deconstruct them and that's the book. Now, not being a therapist, I didn't even go in that direction. But my close friends in that world, that's how they write their books. But when Seth, you know, worked with me on this book, we couldn't go in that direction, nor did we want to. 
And he had some very interesting insights about what those books did to people that he knew well. You can talk about that stuff. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people pick up those books, they don't finish them because it's um either it's taking too long to get to the stuff people want. They just and, and the okay, so let me just back up a little bit. The the origins of this book, this book began in in some sense as a lecture I gave um at uh at bars, actually. <laughs> um uh at uh you know so I gave I gave a lecture a couple times at some events where people just like get up and they speak about things they happen to know way too much about at bars and um and a video of one of those talks uh went online and it went you know within the uh <laughs> the the goalposts of the polyvagal world just very different from anything with like taylor swift it went viral ish right so um you know a couple hundred thousand half million people watching it and um and it, it really became apparent that there was an immense hunger for somebody to just speak directly to people and say Here's why you're feeling the way you do. This is what's happening to you. Um, and we don't need 400 pages of case studies to get there. We just need to talk directly to people as succinctly, quickly, and directly as we can. You know, And so rather than a book you know, in the Oliver Sacks mold, who is a genius, no, no shade thrown in his direction at all, or uh, the Malcolm Gladwell mold, or even you know, books like The Buy to Keep Score, which is an excellent and an imperative book that everybody should read. We wanted to do something a little bit different, which was as quickly as possible, just give this information to people, something that in one sitting, you can almost walk away and get get the gist of it. You know, we don't need this to be something that you don't finish. Let's just get this done as quickly as we can, as <laughs> download as quickly as we can, and do it in a way that I think strikes what we hope is an effective tone that is readable, engaging, conversational, uh, recognizes a, a lot of pain that people might be feeling, and is able to talk about it in a way that doesn't re-traumatize them, you know? It yeah. doesn't, well, um, yeah. That last point, Seth, the issue of triggers. A lot of books about trauma are very, really books that trigger people who read them. And this really was uh, an interesting thought or uh, basically agenda in writing the book that it was it doesn't have triggers. It's blunted. It has information. It has scenarios. But it doesn't really, it, it's blunted in terms of, it doesn't have the shock and awe that some of the books tend to have. But but I think, yeah, and I think there might be people who hear that and kind of think like, oh, the book's been nerfed or, um, or you know, the word blunt, I think, kind of makes people feel like it's not as insightful or sharp. I think our goal was um, kind of the opposite, which is if you, if you recognize and understand the way people are going to feel when they read this, I think you can get a lot closer to their experiences. I yeah. think you can get yeah. in a lot deeper before they shut the book down on you. Yeah, you know, Matt. Yeah. I, th I think we've been talking a lot about this. The you know, the turning science into a humanistic experience, turning science into something that that uh, which is pretty tricky. But uh, and and uh, I, I did this with Ernie Rossi, who loved the science, but we learned to talk. But what what are you thinking there, Matt? Oh yeah, I think it's uh, remarkable that you've been able to take this lens of a worldview, um, wrap it into a a book which is non-triggering and delivers this message quickly effectively and you know and is like you said we don't have to wade through all of the science what i wanted to um ask you about is your journey from like the the, the fundamental worldview is this something that you um seth had from the beginning you know um you and dad would have conversations and and this is the obvious um worldview that that comes out of all of the science or 
did you have to unpack and sort of go through a a, a process to sort of filter it all out into a, a message for you were talking specifically about your generation, but but for the common man? Yeah, that that's an interesting question. Not one that's actually really easy for me to answer. I think it's it's hard for me to delineate what here came from dinner table conversations and just being immersed in this world. It's hard for me to figure out what came from that versus just being raised by Dr. Porges and uh, and his own worldview implanting onto me, or uh, you know, just genetic similarities and a tendency for us to sort of perhaps interpret information in similar ways, right? But I think it certainly was in my in my personal experience and evolution that was colored by my own experiences, um, it, you know, kind of my own journey towards adulthood and understanding, um, you know, what feelings I might have, what experiences I might have and, and grasping for answers in them and sort of finding the answers, I think, closer than anyone could imagine, you know? Right, right. Yes, I, I certainly know for myself, who you know, a, a psychology science nerd, um, you know, and and getting into the weeds of the science, you know, trying to explain that then to clients or to family, um, often doesn't end up, you know, with the same sort of impact that I had hoped. You know, they sort of get the 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 light bulb revelation. Um, and but it sounds like that you've um, you've managed to find the right the right language, the right yeah. tone. Yeah. And it is, it is, it's really hard for me to kind of figure out where, like how direct, you know, what came from conversations, what came from experience with my father, what came from experience outside of him. Right. Um, mm. And I think it like to the point where I remember kind of, you know, really starting to dig into this material a number of years ago, not fully understanding it perhaps, but kind of getting a little bit of it and uh, you know, coming up with ways of visualizing or explaining this that he would be like, oh, that's exactly how I explain it to people. You know, like we we kind of um, run throughout the book, we kind of use as a running metaphor for the different autonomic states of traffic light. This idea that depending on how safe your body feels, you know, you could be in the green state or the yellow state or the red state as a really kind of simple uh, fill in for you know, kind of words that might be a little more off-putting, like parasympathetic nervous system, ventral vagal system, whatever it might be, just kind of, and, um, and I, I kind of like, you know, talked about this with him and he was like, oh yeah, do I use that in talks all the time? He would say to me, you know, without me even realizing, I'm like, oh, okay. So, I, and, and I think that was a realization to me that I think I was beginning to really, um, foundationally see this very similar to how he does. Mm. I think a lot of the conclusions that we draw in this book that I wrote out are ones that he had already come to independently on his own and maybe had never written before. And, um, and a lot of that I think comes, you know, I think he'll be the first person to say that a lot of the, uh, uh, his understanding of how polyvagal theory affects us as people and our experiences comes from all the people out there who've come up to him and told him, you know, how about their experiences. I mean, he, he likes to say that, the trauma world found him, right? Like he didn't yeah. set out, you know, with the polyvagal theory thinking this is going to be foundational for how people talk about trauma. They told him that. And I think likewise, a number of domains who discovered polyvagal theory told him that too, whether it was music therapy or uh, interior design or business management. I think people sort of see their own lives, their own professions, and they see this as sort of this unifying worldview that colors and influences what it is. And he, you know, he's just, I think, so gracious and so game to be open to other people telling him what his work means. And that's, I think, just really amazing. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Seth. But I also yeah. learned a lot from you and through your your growth experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it takes a lot to, in a sense, be a parent. I don't I don't mean to minimize this whole thing, but parents are. It, it's a metaphor for the theory. We try to fix things. We try to change things. We have our preconceived view of what our child should do and how they should behave. And what we mess up on is not uh, creating the context, the empowerment of the child to be who they are, in a sense, to be safe enough to be the brilliant son that Seth is. And that is, uh, Seth has his own gears and wheels that are unfolding, but they don't unfold under threat. You know, so you, you have to understand that Creating a safe place is important for all of us, for our pets, for our children, for our spouses. And we have to, as Seth was saying, it's really a a view of the world. It's a world perspective. And that is, if we're in a safe world, who do we become? If we're in a dangerous world, it's very predictable. We become very proximal, concerned about self, protective, not very generous, but also not very creative. So the issue is when we become safe, we become really an interesting species. We cooperate, we benefit, we mutually gain, and we are less concerned about self because we gain through cooperation. And in the therapeutic world, you talk in terms of co-regulation. In in early development, we talk about co-regulation. But then after the infancy period, we forget about co-regulation. We start bossing the body around. And the issue is we always need co-regulation. It doesn't matter how old you are. In in a sense, you want to be safe in someone else's arms or what I say in an appropriate ma- another appropriate mammal. So if you don't have a person, you have a dog or a horse or like what we now have, Seth, we have we have the cat. <laughs> the cat, yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the you know these these things. I mean, as I've been watching it and I've been sort of uh, really engaged with this very early on, the early two thousands, and going through. One of the things I noticed uh, with you, Stephen, was your caution uh, with with bringing this work out. Uh, the um, and part of the evolution, I think, has been has been your 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 careful reassessment and waiting until you felt safe with it i suppose in some respects because we, we we deliberately tried to show in in our book that there were some dissenting voices that there were things and i i felt that you listened and that's gave me gave it greater credibility that you listened yeah. to the dissenting well interestingly because i'm just finishing up this paper and i didn't want to put anything about dissenting views but when i did I found out that the dissenting views in general were straw man arguments. They were misreading the the theory and making statements and attributions that were not what the theory was. And therefore, they could reject those statements as being false because I never even made them. So it's like it's a myopic perspective because the theory is is emergent and flexible. So it tends not to have these uh, major conflicts. So one can always argue about interpretation. They can debate on metrics for measurement, but you can't really make faulty statements of attribution of someone else's theory. So it's been very interesting. And I've listened and I've been patient on all this because when you react to that, you become basically, it's, it's like threat and defense. And I just wanted things... What I wanted, I wanted the community to write itself. And then I started to realize this is a personal journey. 
that the sophistication underlying the theory was really too great for the communicate for the community to write. I had to write the paper. I didn't want to. I you know I, I want these things in the scientific world. If you make mistakes, someone catches you and you pay the price. But if you start misunderstanding someone else's theory and make attributions about things that the theory has nothing to do with, and then publishing that that is truth. Yeah, and they're in very specific disciplines that clinicians don't know or understand. It, it creates a mess, and it cuts under into belief systems. So, what polyvagal theory was supposed to do, and this is why Seth in, in our book, our book is very important because it brings it down to a level of intuition and understanding. And since our own, when we read it, it becomes intuitive. And this was the story of polyvagal theory: is when people got it. They got it. It was in their body. It was intuitive. And that's why the trauma world uh, basically welcomed me and taught me what they know. And I learned and used that. But the issue is if you don't get it and you don't figure it out and you basically assume that what someone else is saying is just not credible, it's a myoptic perspective that limits your view of the world. So you have better sit back and say, if this model is correct, what do I get from it? And then what does it not do for me? And then can I modify it so I'm comfortable with it? So there's certain simple principles. And when I developed the theory, I thought the principles were so simple, they could not be argued. And, mm -hmm. and the issue was that, that was not the theory. The theory was using those principles to infer mental health and development and all these others. That was the theory, mm -hmm. was the inference that you gain from these principles. But the criticisms couldn't even extract the principles. And the principle is really, do we change with evolution, yes or no? And the answer is certainly. What happened with evolution? Well, we ended up developing, uh, linking certain autonomic functions with social engagement. And we know that intonation of voice, facial expressivity leads to proximity, leads to relationship. Not a, a tough one. And the other real take-home one, and it's not hard, is that our autonomic nervous system, and this translates in the real world, how we feel influences how we act. Not real tough. And what the theory gives you is now a way of measuring this, a way of functionally understanding the consequences of being in different states. And those different states follow basic rules. That uh, what we talk is the term ventral vagus, that's our new mammalian system. And that can literally contain, constrain, and choreograph our whole autonomic nervous system, make us feel better and enable homeostatic functions. But when we move into defenses, those systems are turned off and it challenges our body. Very simple. And if we overdo it, we shut down. Not very difficult. We see this, we observe it. What's to argue about that? The interesting part to me was the theory. Can you take these principles and can you set up a therapeutic model? Can you change education? Can you change culture and society? That is, those are the real questions. Don't, in a sense, get into stuff that's not part of the theory. Know what questions it was developed for. It's not yeah. developed for, you know, microbiology or, in a sense, uh, neurophysiology. It uses neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, but it's not a theory of neurophysiology or neuroanatomy or evolution. So it's using these to, in a sense, make inference, which is the history of science.
So it's a very interesting journey for me to see how these ideas can be used. And what you're saying, Richard, was my strategy was I'm an academic. I mean, it's very hard to wash my hands and say I'm no longer an academic. And when I talk about being an academic, there's two sides of it. There's one, I'm very proud of, quote, surviving and prospering within it. But there's another side that, well, you know, academics as a cultural phenomenon, as a societal feature, it's not the warm, fuzzy world that you want the world to be like. You know, it's a world of evaluation. Uh, So I have to, uh, in a sense, realize that I could not only survive, but I could thrive within that world. But that's not the world of my creativity. My world of creativity is in the world of safety. And that's the world that, you know, that's what we're trying to express in this book. What is a world of safety? What does it do for the individual? And in doing that for the individual, what does it do for the society? Forever. Yeah. It's Fantastic. it's very, very good that the academic has, has uh, handed over to a journalist slash filmmaker <laughs> to... Uh, <laughs> to interpret these things. So I was just wondering in terms of, because yes, um, theory to make inference, to to understand the world um, is uh, sort of the, the primary sort of motivation. Mm-hmm. But then obviously the end goal is pragmatic, right? We want to change yeah. things. And so um, Seth, in, in terms of motivation uh, with the book, um, was there a balance between pragmatism and sort of theory understanding or is it sort of one comes out of the other what were you thinking in terms of pragmatism yeah i mean it, it's it's everything about the book was was driven by a hope to help people is is really the truth and there are a lot of uh you know things related to polyvagal theory and sort of the hardcore science type of things we just simply don't go into in the book because that's not what this book is there are other books out there that do that well, including ones my dad has written. Uh, this book is not that. This book is, here's what you need to know uh, in order to understand your own feelings, and here's how it might apply to your life in this crazy world we all live in today. Um, it's, you know, it wasn't a, a difficult balance, honestly. Um, and and where we do kind of go into the science, it's where it, it, it's, it's what is foundational in order to understand how this applies to your life, period. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, this is the, the, the important things is, uh, you know, you run through the contents list and uh, just this nice build up. Of course, there's a, a reflection in the in the early stages of sort of establishing what polyvagal is in your sort of introduction area uh, and, and then just running through these progressive statements. But also at the, at the end, in the second part, you actually uh, take a sort of a, a particular view and you look at a, a, a few you know specific areas. You you look at, um, you know, at work and education. Education, uh, you know, in, in and interestingly, in incarceration, talk about a place that's yes. full of uh, full of traumatic uh, uh, places of safety and unsafety. That was that I think will really give people the metaphors and the analogies uh, uh, if they don't directly relate to those things. But yeah. those who do directly relate, yeah. Yeah, at the end of the book, we say like, okay, here's a couple specific, uh, you know, places in the world in which you can sort of see how the polyvagal theory might uh, inspire, you know, uh, allow us to either understand why things work the way they do or perhaps inspire us to find uh, places of change and improvement um, if we're being perhaps counterproductive 
by throwing a violent criminal into uh, solitary confinement. Maybe that might make them more violent. Just something to think about, right? Um, or maybe trying to understand why are, why have people become so angry and unmoored after being isolated at home for two years? Maybe that's something that you can understand. But really from there, it's about uh, just really, you know, lighting enough dots on the map that the pattern recognition part of your own brain can begin to see things in your own life in other places. And I think, you know, we only have a couple of chapters in that part of the book. And I think that's enough because it really is all just saying the same thing. And that is when people, when we make people feel unsafe, they become aggressive, defensive, perhaps violent, less able to think, less able to learn, and their health suffers. And all of the ways in this world in which we make people feel unsafe when it has to do with the workplace, well, maybe you're being counterproductive. If your employees uh, have a sense of existential dread all the time, they're not going to be as creative and productive and they're going to leave, right? Um, we talk about, again, incarceration. Well, if your goal is rehabilitation, maybe the way we treat these people is counterproductive. If we're, if we're talking about education, maybe... Um, you know, not giving, making, you know, starving kids who can't eat and then shaming them uh, is going to make them never want to show up at school again and perhaps, uh, you know, not do well in other assets of their life, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe. You just begin to see all these things and realize it all comes down to that one word at the end of the day, which is safety. And I think this book ends on really the only sentence anybody needs to know if they're going to just skim to the skip to the end, which is, I'm going to get the exact text wrong, but if safety and how safe we ourselves feel and how safe everybody else feels is really important. What can we do to make ourselves and other people feel safe? And if you're going to sum up, what is the polyvagal worldview? That is it, period. It's not just safety from a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, I think what makes the polyvagal worldview different from the one that people might kind of come into it in is people might view safety as, okay, let's throw a lot of metal detectors at school because that'll keep guns out of out of there, and that will keep kids safe. What polyvagal theory is concerned with isn't the actual life threat. It's how our nervous system responds to the world around us. And to be clear, it is not to be dismissive of life threat. It is not to be dismissive of actual danger, but it is saying that also what matters is how we feel. And if we feel safe, and if we feel threatened, our body transforms. And understanding how our body transforms and how it transforms in either a positive way or a negative way can and should influence the way we treat other people and the way we design the world around us and the institutions that we spend our lives in. Well, my, my head just spins thinking about the thousands yeah. of PhDs that could come out of just looking at the prison system or the youth detention system um, yeah. and how that can be reformed because we all know that needs reform because it's not very effective in Amen. terms of end goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, to kind of like just build off of that, once you begin yeah. to see through the matrix, so to speak, once you begin to see, uh, you know, the ways in which our world intentionally May oftentimes makes us feel unsafe or unintentionally does, but doesn't really care at the same time. You know, I think those are two different things. Is you're the cynical, I want to make people feel unsafe, or I just don't care about how people feel. And once you begin to realize that, it really is eye-opening. Again, when you're like, oh, why are these politicians trying to cast certain groups as threats all the time? And then you begin to say things like, oh, there has never been a dictator uh, or authoritarian government in human history that didn't rise to power except by casting people as others and 
and uh, making a sense of fear permeate the society to the point where people stop thinking critically. That is how fascism, that's how authoritarianism, that is how dictatorships rise, period, the end. Um, and once you look at modern technology media, why is it that's so that I'm doom scrolling, staring at Twitter or Facebook and just feeling outrage and fear, but I can't turn away? Well, because activation is sympathetic activity. It is to be afraid, right? And unfortunately, the technology and the media companies, I have worked for technology. I have worked for media companies. <laughs> technology media can be great, but oftentimes they have absolutely no either way of differentiating or interest in differentiating positive and negative arousal. And if you look at measurements of arousal, measurements of engagement, things they use even like if they're gonna get biometric about it, like galvanic skin, you know, GSR, right? That is sympathetic activation. That is measuring fear, in other words, right? That is measuring how threatened you feel. Activation, engagement equals threat. And they and, and if you have an algorithm that is deciding what it's going to show you based on prior past experiences of you and other people, it's always going to lean into that more and more and more and more and more. And as we look toward to a future in which these algorithms and artificial intelligence generated content are just kind of automatically spinning without human intervention, creating the content that we are going to consume, that is going to increasingly, increasingly dominate the realities we live in. I use the word reality in sort of the sense of the matrix, like how do like the, the media all around us, the world all around us, everything all around us is just going to become increasingly dominated by that because that keeps us engaged. And that is something I think it's really, really, really important for people to just think about. Just think about, you know? Yeah. Not only keep us engaged, but keep us in line. I know mm -hmm. the, the nudge programs around the world that are being used to, you know, mm -hmm. consultants to governments that use nudge programs. I mean, they admit, you know, fear is the key, you know, to, to keeping Absolutely. people in line. Like there, is never, there has never been a dictator in the history of human society that didn't rise to power other than by making people afraid of something or somebody, period. Yeah, Stephen, the, the, it's great to the things going on. I see your mouth going, jump in. Okay, I'm going to jump in because there are other institutions that use fear. One is medicine and the other is education. And uh, they're all using the same model. It's called evaluation. It's actually workplace is the same thing. It's the notion that if you're being evaluated, it's a trigger to your nervous system that you're under threat. And that's what doctors do. And the, so the physician lost the power of healing when the physician turned into a deliverer of evaluation. Teachers lose their ability to teach or to stimulate educational experience as they emphasize evaluation. And the education has changed more and more to tests as validity of an education. So we know what's going on. And then again, if you get to the roots of a lot of this, you say, well, Western uh, society, Western civilization is very, uh, religion has played a large role in that. And the religion was never an optimistic, positive embracement of being a human. It was really a minimization of who you were, or let's say humility or humbling would be even a better word, uh, and dismissive individual needs. And the problem, I would say the issue with our, with our nervous system is that uh, survival needs are much more reactively powerful than our intentionality. So if we can, this is really Seth's point, if we can trigger people into being states of fear, that's all you need to know because they can't will themselves out of it. 
And so, uh, and in the yeah, therapeutic it's not conscious, world, it's autonomic, it's automatic, yeah. it's mm, yeah, well, it's, there. It, yeah. it's a it's a priority. Survival circuits take priority over intentionality. And in the therapeutic world, where you try to understand this from a cognitive worldview, you get into trouble because it doesn't make any sense because the behaviors are going to be maladaptive. And you can't get the person out of the maladaptive behavior, regardless of how much you tell them how maladaptive it is. The examples I love to use is like if a person's depressed and you say, what are you depressed for? You have so much to live for. How good is that as a therapeutic model? How good does it work? Or, you know, and we still do it. We, you know, we, we treat people as if those foundational survival reactions are under their voluntary control. And it's an insult. That's why what the theory did was it gave a credibility to people's own visceral experience and gave respect to it and honored it for what it is. It's the body trying to take care of you under threatening conditions. Yeah, the, this this is the the thing. I mean, I was addressing it. We I remember when we had dinner 15, 16 years ago, uh, and at your conference there, uh, we talked of this external evaluation. I, yeah, I, wrote, yeah. I wrote a little book called The Winner Loser World, I, where I I just described this this externally evaluating, uh, uh, yeah. well, just that catchphrase of winner loser, which uh, where you win and lose based on other people's frameworks. But the most important thing is exactly what we're saying here, is that it changes the orientation of the way in which yeah. the, the the neural circuits interpret the world uh, yeah. and and you become stuck. Uh, one one of the things I talk about is is that the, the win or loser world framework is is black up the black and white. Uh, and one of the ways in which I make myself a winner, uh, I can do it by winning, but I can also do it by making you a loser. So as, yeah. as if there's some mm. ipso facto magic thing that if 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 you're bad, I'm good. And uh, uh, we're seeing this agree. a lot, aren't we, Stephen? Well, I was going to say, welcome to the academic world, which yeah. is <laughs> it, it's a view that there's just a finite uh, amount of rewards, whether we're talking about salary or honoring. Uh, it's, it is not uh, what I had expected it to be, even though I will say that it's been really a wonderful world for me. It, it is extraordinarily competitive. And so you have to literally uh, protect domain. It's, uh, but the interesting part of what you're saying is that putting people's bodies under a state of chronic threat changes the features of who we are. And that's what's going on all over the place. Um, and we haven't, in a sense, stepped back and say, wow, this is, this is really Seth's words, standing back and saying, wow, look what, what's happening. We're too smart to allow this to occur. Now, I will share with you a uh, a situation I had about 15 years ago, I was applying, I was interviewing for a major administrative job at the National Institutes of Health. It was a good job. And I'm meeting with the director and I'm telling him, I make my big statement, my big pitch. My big pitch is that we know too much about human biology to allow medicine to be practiced the way it is. I said, our responsibility is to recruit the patient's nervous system as a collaborator in a journey of wellness or health. Now, that's what polyvagal theory is. That's what we're talking about. That's what many of the polyvagal informed therapists are doing. It's shared journeys of towards wellness, towards recovery through co-regulation. Now, the uh, director of the NIH was a radiologist. He didn't have a clue of what I was talking about. 
and I didn't get the call back, okay, which was probably very good. But the issue was, it was like, you know, it's a different world. When you understand the world that many of the physicians are in, it's really uh, fee-for-service modeling. It's financially driven. It's But what's the consequence of all that? Many physicians are suicidal, burnt out. They're not getting any co-regulation from their practice. Yeah. And uh, and it's a really, it's paradoxical. Why are they so unhappy? And it's not always salary. It's that it's not fulfilling. It's, they're not doing what they wanted. They wanted to be in the process of helping people heal, recover. Yeah, this is the elephant in the room. Uh, and, and we just don't see it. But I must admit, selling the win or loser world was hard because people say, don't call me a loser. <laughs> it was, Gosh. And, and in that oh. sense, but your way of, the, the way of doing it now with polyvagal is saying, you're not a winner or a loser. You're just, this is what's going on. So, so Richard, this is the, the issue that I start to think about. So in that type of world, when you win in that kind of world, what are you getting? You're getting stuff. Yeah. You're getting money or you're getting prestige or what I would say, grants or publications. You're getting a label. It has mm. very little to do with the sense of self. Yeah. So what you are, you become literally conditioned or the word would be addicted to stuff. Yeah. And so people, you know, being a billionaire might not be enough. You might want to need to have 10 billion or 100 billion because it now changes the category that other people will see you as. But it's still never going to be enough yeah, because which is, being yeah. enough is coming from the co-regulation because our nervous system knows one thing. It knows that objects are never enough. Which is a very left hemisphere way of perceiving the world and operating in the world, which is, again, like I saw that in, in education. When, so when I was, when I was a, a kid going through school, I, you know, I was very artistic and I was given a lot of space and a lot of scope to explore. Um, and then I noticed when my kids went through school, they weren't given the same space. It was just such an emphasis on, um, you know, testing and, and, and being, you know, adjudicated and um, even in art. You know, the, the art was so stilted, and and there was sort of you had to be marked on every step along the way, um, and there was uh, I, I could just see the you know the creativity being um, mm. limited, squeezed out, mm, squeezed yeah, out. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And jo journalism is not such a a, a joyously uh, open and caring experience either, is it? Seth? No, no, a journalist. And yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's there, there's no profession almost these days that uh, is free of the constant feeling of like you're being watched or evaluated, and this yeah, shows that's up the a elephant. lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a chapter about this in the book, and I think you know, in in white collar professions, maybe this is an Excel spreadsheet where every metric uh, becomes a cell that you're pitted against other people with. Um, never goes away, uh, right? Or maybe if you're in the service industry or work in fast food or retail, um, you know, you know, you're just constantly on call at all times, right? And that feeling of like at any minute somebody's going to call me and I have to show up right now, but I'm still not a full time employee, still don't have health benefits, but I'm on call all the time, right? Or again, going back to the white collar world. You never take a vacation if your phone's ringing, if it's vibrating all the time, those emails are always there. We're, we're, you know, we as humans require 
those homeostatic moments of rest and recuperation. We really do to be healthy, to be the best selves we can be. Uh, but we live in a world that doesn't really give them to us much. Uh, either we're constantly being evaluated or we're constantly being monitored. Uh, you hear, um, you know, like, like people in, just say, the trucking profession complain about GPS monitoring. And somebody might be like, well, what are they hiding? You know, why Why do they care? But I think it really goes to the sense that, like, in the back of your head, you know, somebody's monitoring you. You can never actually turn up. Without that ability to turn up, you can't recuperate. You can't rest. You can't really be your best self nor your best uh, employee you possibly can. And I, again, there's almost no profession in which some form of this doesn't exist today. Right, right. Just just as a sidebar, um, what is going to rescue uh, journalism from artificial intelligence? Nothing. I mean, it's it's screwed. No, uh, as, I, I, I say it half joking. Um, no, I, I think it depends what you mean by journalism, truthfully. Like if you're talking about, um, you know, a lot of uh, kind of like low rent content mail websites already use probably chat GPT to write articles. You know, they'll just like pump in some stuff and outcomes. Here's your list of movies or video game secrets or whatever. It might be just like clickbaity type stuff. Uh, we're not yet at a point where you know, like investigative reporting and a lot of the really important journalism can uh, can be replaced um, from a quality perspective. But the the real fear I think a lot of people have is that uh, you know, customer, you know, the, the end user, the, the 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 readers out there won't be able to differentiate between what's just you know made up by a machine and full of inaccuracies and not actually reported and what was the result of actual reporting and is new information because ai at its core is just taking information that's out there uh putting it into a blender and then spinning something out that's what the ai is doing right that's not journalism um at all and um i think the fear is that we'll will we get to a point where readers out there have a difficult time differentiating the two and thus understanding what's misinformation, what's a lie, what's important, and what just kind of gets lost in the noise. And, and, and the AI any... generation, sorry, no. sorry, sorry the AI-generated content can uh, crowd out, um, you know, the um, the authentic journalism as well. I mean, it's simply, um, you know, a matter of numbers, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, and journalism already, I mean, there's, there's no profession that gets hurt more often than that of the journalist. I mean, every wave of new technology, it feels like, Journalists are first in the firing squad um, in the layoffs, truly. Yeah. But uh, it's but I think I think the real worry, you know, like journalists aside, journalists have always had hard. I think the real worry is what is this due to uh, the fourth estate? What is this due to the guardrails of democracy? What is this due to people's abilities to get accurate information? What is this due to people's ability to get the information that's required to make informed decisions about their lives and the world around them? That's the real worry. I mean, journalists will survive and if they don't they've always had it hard the real worries was it's due to the world because the journalists as hated as they are is a crucial job for democracy it's crucial yes and, it's, it's um yeah just that yeah, importance well, the importance yeah. of something of, of the only thing the most positive thing i think i see in the whole ai uh, sort of debate and issue mm -hmm. is that it returns the uh, it returns the, the the freedom or the necessity for a human being to create something new to find what is new to be inventive and discussive and so if you're reading something that uh, that's saying this is what is already known you'll go well it could be ai but if you're going oh wow this is new. This is this is different. That then you're more likely to be in um, uh, in that sort of uh, uh, exciting frame of human creativity 
but it's going to take us a little while to be able to discern the difference. And yeah, uh, but journal, you know. journalism isn't about being creative, though. Often, oftentimes, some writing might be, but journalism is about reporting the truth, holding accountability, creating accountability for people in power, and making sure people have accurate information. AI, by definition, is going to take things people have shown that they like to read and give them more of it. Or like, you know, there's a million Marvel movies out there, let's create another, right? Um, And whatever state is right now, it's good in a year, whatever we have right now is going to be unrecognizable. It's going to be so much better, uh, so much more, you know, impressive. And that creates opportunities. I'm not an anti-technologist. I'm not a lie. I'm not whatever. It creates opportunities, but it creates fear. And I think it creates fear on the parts of the people who are making the AI because everybody recognizes how powerful this is. And as a matter of rule, like, you know, the regulation and the guardrails of technologies always move slower than technology itself does. But nowhere ever that I can think of has that gap ever been as apparent as with AI. Um, well, it's almost impossible to regulate as a result. Yeah. Well, let's swing it round uh, in the context to, to, to where we are using that. I, I don't believe that it would have been possible for ChatGPT to come up with the polyvagal theory. Right. It, I typed it in. I, I typed it in today. It was really quite interesting. Well, it's pulling uh, existing <laughs> information. That's what it's doing. Uh, but to come up with it, in, yeah, and and you know what? Like, it, AI is good at, at some things. It's terrible at the things that really move us forward as people, yes. right? It's terrible in new ideas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, playing devil's advocate here, the unfortunate truth is that there's a comfort in sameness. There's a comfort in people being given things that the machine knows they already like. There's a comfort in that. I don't want to be dismissive of that. And again, like right now, we're we're trying to, it's it's like we're in the age of the prop plane trying to imagine, uh, you know, 777 Dreamliners. Like this technology is so new, we have no idea what it's going to look like in six months, right? Yeah. And, and that's what's so scary is just how impossible to predict any of any of this is. And what it, again, and kind of go back to polyvagal theory, what the ramifications are then for the reality we experience. From the from the if 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 we are always around screens, what's on those screens? If we're always around other people who are always on those screens, and we mimic or mirror or influence by their worldviews, their autonomic state, what does it do to that? Right, and that I think is the real fear because we we live in a world now where unless you're trying to not be around a screen, you're always around a screen. There's always opportunity for you to be influenced in that way. And I think we um, we, we simultaneously both over and under, underestimate how independently we think. We are very emotionally driven people. We do respond to the world around us, but we also, I think, only when we feel safe have the ability to think very, very independently and strategically and creatively. But safety is the requisite for that. Yeah, I think so- there's a lot of people who talk about things like, well, free will or mind control, whatever. Like just what the polyvagal theory, I think, gives you a really great way of understanding this, which is when you feel safe, you can see through a lot of the stuff. When all you feel threatened, you have a hard time doing so. All yeah. those things sit on top. Stephen, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, want, I want to jump in for a moment. Yeah, we're getting so, towards the what, end, I guess, too. Yeah. What <laughs> Seth was talking about is really predictability in our environments, a metaphor for safety, because 
violating predictability is threat to many people. But he's saying something much more than that. And this is more relating to his own life, his own creativity, his own ability to be bold. And also, it's actually my life as well, that uh, the violation of predictability, which is what we're both very, very interested in, we're both creative and want to do new things, has to do with feeling safe enough in ourselves to be bold. And that is, and what's it becomes easier if you are safe enough. And what we start realizing that safe enough is a variable with great range. Because for some people, they're never safe enough. But for other people, yeah, safe is fine. I got tenure now, I can do something creative. Others, I can't touch that until I'm a full professor, until I'm a chaired professor, until I'm this, or until I have all of it. The issue is, Boldness is another feature that polyvagal theory really hasn't touched on, but the ability to reach and touch one's own sense of self, when we can call it boldness or whatever character we want to make about it, is dependent upon our bodies being safe enough to allow that to emerge. Mm-hmm. If Absolutely. we're in a sense of great fear all the time, and I'm going to really be very blunt about it, the world, through its own tools of communication, social media, is, in a sense, propagating fear in lots of people. Talk to kids in high school. Talk about uh, social media and bullying. Talk about the awareness of others about being videotaped or picked up on people's cameras. This is not the world I grew up in. It's very different. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able, given my need for predictability, or for anonymity, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Now, Seth and the generations following him are more accustomed to this, and they're adapting, and he's adapted through his own boldness and creativity and brilliance. But what we learn as, I would say, aging adults is that you get used to things, but the world changes. And you have to acknowledge that the world has changed and you're really not up to date in it. It's a different world. And you can't handle all the violations of expectancy that you were used to. Yeah, I was going to say one thing. You know, I, I gave an interview to um, an author just a couple hours ago in which I said that altruism and compassion and empathy are oftentimes sort of a luxury of feeling safe, right? Yes. It's something that's yeah. really, um, I'll add to that. I think uh, creative creativity, uh, boldness and professional mm-hmm. risk taking and creative risk taking yeah. are yeah. likewise of the lux- a luxury for those who feel yeah. safe. Yeah. And Richard, that's where polyvagal theory came from. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, okay, uh, but but you don't you don't know. Um yeah. poly I was a faculty member at a very early age, at the age of 25, I was an assistant professor. Mm-hmm. So I had been a faculty member for 25 years, which is a, a career for many people when I put out polyvagal theory. I felt secure enough. I was president of an international society. It was a presidential address. I leveraged that into a vehicle to put the theory out there because I knew putting a theory out would never go through the normal channels of review because it wasn't, in a sense, all the data testing it. So why do you develop a theory or put it out there if you know, you want you want the community to test it. You want it out there so it can be helpful. So I leveraged it. It was my own bold decision. From my own perspective on all this, I had no anticipation that it would be embraced by so many people. It is a total shock to me. 
Yeah, your your humility over the years uh, and mm. just uh, just sense of uh, as we say in so many things. How do we ever know what's going to be going to be big? I was listening to Arnold Schwarzenegger. His "I'll be oh. back" line. He said, "I didn't even want to say that line." You know, but but we do. You did. And this last uh, 15 to 20 years has uh, brought it round now to being a talking point. I was looking at a, a conversation today between therapists who are, who are nowhere near all the stuff that we're talking about it, and somebody was talking about trauma and someone wrote in the thing saying, oh, polyvagal theory, that's really good. It's a new thing I've just heard of. <laughs> uh, it's an exciting time uh, because people are discovering, uh, and I think from some of those wonderful things you're saying, says out of necessity, and different different countries and cultures are going through this. America's going through a really difficult time. Some of the, the uh, European countries and, and Middle East are going through a really difficult time. Uh, uh, Australia's uh, a little bit uh, not too struggling, uh, but, but we still got our difficulties. And I'm so grateful, uh, and Matt and I, uh, we were talking about this a lot, <laughs> So grateful that these books are coming out. That uh, the, uh, Stephen, that you've written the detailed, that first detailed book, as you as you said yourself, no one will read. And yeah. Seth, you've now come in and said, "Okay, Dad, let's write one that everyone will read." And between the two of those books, plus the plethora of other really helpful ones, uh, yeah. on behalf of Matt and me, we just want to thank you. Thank you. Can we just quickly plug the book? Give you what the full name is. Here? <laughs> oh, you will. You will. We'll certainly we'll put that, and we'll have it in the show oh, notes, no, and we'll have it all yeah. over. <laughs> Our polyvagal world: colon how safety and trauma changes by Stephen Porges and Seth Porges. Available September twenty sixth from WW Norn. Thank you very much. And it will be in the show notes. Click on the link. Go and get a thousand copies and share them with everybody who's too scared to read it, because that will change their lives. Uh, Stephen Porges and Seth Porges, thank you so much for joining us. We 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 have been blessed. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. thank you, Richard. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. We could have talked with him for ages, hey? No, no, we could have gone, but it was good. I think it was, there was a lot of good stuff. I, I said it was going to be interesting, the take mm. they took, the direction they took, what I was hoping, uh, but it was exactly what you would expect, drawing more and more towards the humanistic experience, how this is a natural famous. See, polyvagal is not a weird thing that we impose on our behavior. It's just an expression of what we're already doing, which yeah. is what is so beautiful. It's just a description of what is natural. It's a part of our systems organizing uh, framework. And if we utilize it and engage with it, all those things that they talk about can change for the better because when we're not, we have a lot of the mess that we have now. So how we can be informed and change things. Absolutely. Now, jump on to Amazon or wherever you get your books and look for our polyvagal world, how safety and trauma changes us. We'll have an Amazon link in the show notes for you. Well worth having a look at. And I, I, I tell you, Richard, I had a page here of questions that I wanted to ask during the interview, but I'm sure we'll get to more of that. We'll, we'll get Stephen and maybe even Seth back on at a later date and can carry on the conversation. Yeah, we want to talk about his films. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Once again, if you want to support us in what we're doing here on the channel, um, please jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. We'd love to have you there with us. Um, otherwise, Richard, it's been great. As indeed, Matt. And uh, I'm just going to go and absorb all that fabulous stuff <laughs> from the many porges.
Fantastic. We'll catch you all later. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.